Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's hey, time for the It's the return, not of the king, but of the geek. Robert M. Price, the Bible geek. I have been away for a week or so, uh, but uh, I have been working on geekish pursuits. I've been working feverishly on my huge book, uh, Holy Fable, the Bible Undistorted by Faith, which I'm beginning to think is going to be my magnum opus. I probably should use the subtitle, Everything I Know About the Bible, probably with quotes around the word no. Uh, also, uh, been uh, reading some people's manuscripts and so forth, and I uh, kind of have to, uh, oh, write in a couple of short stories, uh, anything to bring in a buck or two. Uh, and uh, But want to get back to my favorite podcast, The Bible Geek. So let's take a look at some questions. This is from Jeffrey Zentz. He says, let me state my concern first. I noticed it's been almost a month since you posted a Bible Geek, and I wanted to re- reassure myself that you're not having health problems. Um, indeed, I, I'm not. I, uh, I have, uh, as I say, just been real busy, but I sure appreciate your concern, Jeffrey. Anyways, as I myself am a recovering evangelical, fundamentalist, Calvinist, reconstructionist, I've been all of those at one time or another in my religious life. It was history, both biblical and biological, that finally would not leave me alone and forced me to admit that I had nothing but what you have called in one context or another broken reeds. I do not think my wife knows of my defection, not a battle I choose to fight any time soon. But I do think that my daughter suspects uh, that um, uh, we, um, we're missing, uh, not playing with a full deck, even though I still continue to teach the confirmation class at our church. Since it is a liberal church, I have a great deal of leeway in how I approach the course, so I can at least occasionally raise issues without stepping outside of the acceptable bounds of the course. I teach philosophy for a living, and so my question comes out of my philosophical work. Wow, that's really great. A consummation devoutly to be wished. One of my favorite philosophers is Karl Popper. Basing his work on the fact that all induction is in fact deductively invalid, Popper developed an analysis of scientific methodology that hinges on the notion of falsification. I love that. Uh, The idea is that the best we can do with a scientific theory uh, is test it to see if it is false. Uh, uh, In no strict sense can we prove it. Uh, 
It seems to me that this applies to historical theses as well. It also applies to historical sources. It seems to me that one would have to approach a historical source uh, with the tentative thesis that the source is attempting to be reliable. If it repeatedly fails tests of that thesis, that is, it fails corroboration precisely where you would expect all of the things being equal, uh, where you would expect to find it corroborated in another source or in archaeological data, then one would want to abandon the thesis that the document is attempting to be reliable. Uh, I do not think that this will support any attempt to revive conservative views of the Gospels or Acts. I do think, though, that it would require of us that we consistently state why we find a given pericope not to contain historical data. Where I think this might have the most impact on the current debates is over the issue of whether there is a historical Jesus at all. I do not think this point can... Uh, save much of the Orthodox Jesus. But it seems to me, from my ignorant point of view, that often the thesis that there is some historical core to pericopes is rejected, not because the thesis uh, that there is some historical material here has been tested and found wanting, but rather because we haven't proven that there is a historical core that there is historical core material. I hope I'm taking seriously enough the fact that in history, often testing of historical theses depends on probability judgments and not on open and shut cases. I would appreciate your thoughts on this issue because it does seem to me to have some relevance with regard to the debates over a minimally historical Jesus. Um... Let's see. Is there any, yeah, um, this kind of boils down to the question of is the source innocent until proven guilty, or is it guilty until proven innocent? And um, I uh, seem to think that uh, Collingwood and uh, F. H. Bradley and these guys say that no, you've got to justify it before you accept it. You cannot assume that it's what it that what it says happened really happened, and um, that uh, all you if you cannot corroborate it some way, such as you suggest earlier in the question, then you have no right to say that it's proven, it's a fact. All you know is that you you can't prove that it's false. That, um, that in fact, that's one of my major gripes about um, the uh, oh the Jesus seminar view as well as that of apologists uh, with the criteria of um, dissimilarity, multiple attestation, and all that stuff. That doesn't give you material that is uh, reliable. It just says that well, we we can't debunk these though they may be false uh it's just that we it's not so easy to tell as it is when you have a blatant anachronism or something and um so i i guess i am in that uh that um, camp but it seems to me ultimately that it's almost a moot point at least in gospel studies or you know if you're talking about um 
authentic Pauline authorship of certain epistles, too. You can show, I think it's almost a moot point, as I say, because uh, even if you do say, okay, let's um, take what we cannot disconfirm as... uh, as true for the sake of argument, you you wind up with so little that it almost doesn't make any difference. Uh, you can't prove a negative exactly, uh, but uh, in the case of like, did Paul really write Second Thessalonians? The negative would be that it's not a forgery. I don't think you can prove that. Uh, and uh, if there are no glaring signs, it could just mean that the, that it was forged and uh, or it's a pseudepigraph and, and the writer did a good job. So who knows? Um, so it ultimately, I, I think, uh, you know, you just can't like strangely enough when you say, well, I can't prove that it's false. So it must be true. In a way, that's like saying, well, we don't exactly know how the pyramids were built, so it must have been a flying saucer with a tractor beam. Hey, look, you don't know. Uh, you can rule out certain things, but uh, or it's like uh, another strange comparison. It's kind of like apophatic or negative theology where you say, there's no way a human mind could understand or grasp God. I mean, even if there is a God, precisely, if there is this infinite being, you're just uh, kidding yourself to think you could really understand it. And so Eastern Orthodox theologians especially uh, have that, um, that humility. Well, so did Calvin, right? And Schleiermacher, they all said, uh, well, we, or Luther, we know Christ through his benefits. Uh, There's some, it's like the blind man and the elephant uh, parable. Uh, There's certain things we know, but you you can't know the whole thing. So what is the role of theology? To try to get rid of as many misconceptions as we can. In in a way, I think that's what uh, historical methodology is. We want to get rid of what we uh, can show as bogus evidence, though, as Collingwood said, even propaganda has a history. I mean, everything is evidence for something, but it may not be what it is trying to tell us. So, hope that helps. Very good, uh, interesting question. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks again for your concern. Uh, Let's see this from Justin White. And uh, by the way, I think that's politically incorrect. You you have to change your name to black or African-American, right? Or or, uh, the spectrum or something, right? Somebody's going to be offended if your name is White, right? Anyhow, um, I have a student who was about to undergo baptism into the Jehovah's Witnesses. Given this, she approaches our interactions with all the fervor of the recently converted. In one of these interactions, she was showing me Jehovah's Witness literature and a few Bible verses that were apparently important to the use of the term Jehovah. She asked me what I thought the name of God was, and I rattled off Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, El Shaddai, and threw in bales of bull to see if she'd catch it. She didn't. The life of a Bible geek is a lonely one at times. She insisted these are all titles and affectations, but the important name was Jehovah. I've looked... Oh, boy. 
blank screen suddenly, and it... Okay, there it is. It finally decided to come back. Uh, but the important name was Jehovah. I've looked into the history of the translation of the New World Translation Bible, and I understand their insistence on using the term Jehovah in translation, but I don't understand the insistence on the primacy of the name. Is it simply marketing? Is my student just misinformed and a more practiced Jehovah's Witness would say, well, yes, this is just the English rendering of a YHWH? Uh, yeah, I think she she's missed a session of catechism someplace. The uh, Jehovah is just a, a kind of a garbled version of Yahweh, and it, partly it has to do with the fact that there were no vowels in the ancient Hebrew language, right? It was just all consonants, and uh, in fact there was no punctuation, no space between words, and so on. Uh, and... Um, Eventually, scribes added vowel points because most of the words were uh, common and they, they could tell what was being said. But uh, with Yahweh, people had stopped pronouncing it, as you know, right? Uh, don't take the name of Yahweh or God in vain. Whoops, what exactly would that mean? I, I don't want to get uh, hit by a lightning bolt or get stoned. But all I said was, this halibut is good enough for Jehovah. Ooh, here come the rocks. Right? Uh, and uh, so th uh, whether they thought this was true or just better than nothing, the people that came up with Jehovah used... Uh, this doesn't quite make sense to me. I, there's more to it, I'm sure, than, than I know. But it's been suggested that they used the vowels that were preserved for Elohim and just plugged them into the consonants, though Jehovah is not spelled with an I-H at the end. So I don't quite understand it myself. Uh, but um, the J is because uh, this all, all the the thing was coined by German speakers, and uh, they even uh, German scholars even spelled out the Hebrew letters. The tetragrammaton is the name Yahweh. Uh, that's really, I think, how you're supposed to say it. But uh, for them, uh, they would spell even that with a J because. You say that like a Y in German, right? Jawohl, it's spelled with a J. And um, and uh, W is pronounced like a V in German. So they wrote it, even that, as um, J-A-H-V-E, and sometimes with an H on the end. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, good God, wake up, Bryce. J A H. W E H pronounced Yahweh, and that that they were trying to convey what the Hebrew would sound like, and uh, so that uh, even in the Jehovah version, they did get the V right, but uh, they misconstrued the pronunciation of the J. So Jehovah is simply a slightly garbled version of Yahweh. I don't mean to make a huge deal out of that. I use them interchangeably, uh, just for variety's sake. But I, I think she is is mistaken. I, and I, w the proof of this is that um, the witnesses have another 
I forget what uh, the Bible in living English. No, uh, yeah, I forget the name of it. But they they also use another more recent translation that does have Yahweh with the Y and the W, and uh, so they they recognize that it's two spellings of the same thing. I think this is on a par with her not knowing that Beelzebul is not the the god of the Old Testament. She just doesn't happen to to know. Not that she's stupid. There's a lot to keep straight, right? Okay. Um, then uh, Justin says, uh, not a question, but your podcast got me working on some material for a stand-up routine of obscure biblical references. So Abraham is sitting by the Oaks of Mamre along with a oneness Pentecostal minister. They look up and three men are approaching. They both run to the men and entreat them to stay and rest and go about making the preparations to host them. As they get to talking, the men ask Abraham, Where is Sarah, your wife? Abraham responds, She's in the tent. One man says to Abraham, I will surely return to you in the spring, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah hears this from the tent and laughs to herself. The man reveals himself as the Lord and says, Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything impossible for Yahweh? The oneness Pentecostal minister jumps with fright and yells, Jesus Christ, don't surprise me like that. Get it? Yeah, uh, Jesus only is the name of God. And there goes the darn screen again. What is the matter with this thing? I can just read to you from that. Blue. Okay, yeah. Okay, here is another from Phil the Thrill. I was listening to the most recent History in the Bible podcast, and it got me thinking, what is the Old Testament minimalist understanding of 40 years of wandering in the desert? What narrative or political purpose do you think it served? especially if the Old Testament was compiled and redacted later in the first millennium BCE. Well, uh, I think it's an attempt to harmonize the um, tradition that Moses was the leader of a nomadic group of Bedouins, basically. And the, when, when they're going to these places like uh, Massa and Meribah and so forth, and there's stories about Moses making the water at one of them drinkable and uh, speaking to a rock and water gushes out of it or striking a rock with his magic wand and the water gushes out of it. These things all were stories told at various oases and grazing areas. And um, all these stories about the wilderness wanderings just were about the lifestyle of a nomadic people. There was no thought that they were trying to go out of the, the desert and go into Canaan. But there was the patriarchal tradition of God promising the, the land to uh, Abraham and his progeny. And at some point, they were trying to unite these various cycles of tradition that originally had nothing to do with each other. And uh, so there was the need to get the people in the desert stories off stage uh, and to start afresh with Joshua and the conquest, well, even in Deuteronomy, a, a new generation rose. The, the original 
children of Israel in the desert were all dead. Uh, and so I think the 40 years are just a kind of a literary gimmick to give enough space uh, to uh, have to get rid of them. Uh, there's a similar sort of a thing in the uh, New Testament. When uh, Jesus, around 30 A.D. or C.E., says that uh, this generation will not pass in its entirety, right, before the the end, and that is somehow connected with the fall of Jerusalem. That's a murky mess. It at least involves that, the destruction of the temple. Well, what do you know? Uh, there's 40 years between Jesus' death and the fall of the temple. Uh, so was, the, was there a historical Jesus who said something like this, or have they used the 40 years as a way to uh, distance Jesus, historical or fictive, uh, from the historical fact of the, uh, of the fall of the city? I think this is a similar sort of a buffer uh, gimmick to uh, to uh, m manipulate the timeline, if that makes any sense. Uh, Gary Steelman, the man of steel. In Luke 2.11, the angel tells the shepherds that the anointed one is born in the city of David. In the rest of the Bible, the city of David is Mount Zion or Jerusalem. But here the angels are speaking of Bethlehem. Why didn't the angels just say David's hometown? Um, is it possible that these few sentences were inserted into Luke's gospel from a separate story that had the anointed one being born in Jerusalem? Perhaps the author of Luke or a later editor could not resist this scene of the heavenly host saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and added it to their story even though it is the wrong city. Uh, I uh, think that by saying it's it's like you say why didn't the angel just say david's hometown i think he did i think that's what the city of david means and uh and and the uh so i'm i'm not sure if there's a real difference there uh, and uh, i mean matthew also makes that uh, connection because he um, is, Joseph is supposedly descended from David and has to go sign up for the Roman census uh, in Bethlehem, David's town, a thousand years earlier. Uh, so that, I don't think that really is a problem. It is interesting to note that uh, Bethlehem was supposed to be the nativity place of Dusaris, who was a pagan god, I think uh, even a dying and rising god. It may have had something to do with the whole thing. Uh, let's see. Greetings from a not yet cold or snowy, <clears throat> as of December 17th, Minneapolis. It's a miracle. Well, you're probably under the ice sheet now, though. Sorry, this is taking a while. This is uh, not Martin Luther. In my conservative Luther, Lutheran upbringing, which I've described before, no attention whatsoever was paid to early church fathers. It was biblical authors, then Martin Luther, then, well, that's it. 
But with my curiosity about the development of Christianity peaked after losing any semblance of religious faith, I recently picked up a used copy of a Penguin edition of Early Christian Writings. Yeah, that's, that's a good little book, which includes epistles attributed to Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Diognetus, actually it's two Diognetus, and Barnabas, as well as the Didache. Something caused, so, yeah, the, the Apostolic Fathers, they're, they're also called. Something caught my eye in the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians, paragraph 13, when the author writes, Do what the Bible tells us. The question is, when did people... Oh, boy. What is going on here with this? Okay. Uh, when did people begin referring to their collections of scriptures as the Bible as opposed to the looser, the scriptures. And who were those first people, who were the first people to use that term? Or in this particular epistle, was there a different term in the original that was loosely translated as the Bible? Something more akin to scriptures? Well, let's see here. Yeah, I think the uh, the book you're talking about has a much looser translation. Let me just read you uh, the uh, relevant part of the first oh, sentence in paragraph 13 uh, from a more literal translation, J.B. Lightfoot's translation. Let us therefore be lowly-minded, brethren, laying aside all arrogance and conceit and folly and anger, and let us do that which is written. For the Then goes on, For the Holy Ghost saith, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, etc., etc. Uh, so, yeah, it, it doesn't use the Tobiblion, uh, the Bible. I, I forget when that began to be used, but... Uh, I don't think it was in the first couple of centuries. You know, the first use of the term Old Testament referring to a collection of scriptures is in Melito of Sardis in about the middle of the second century. I don't think he had Bible yet, though I have to admit I don't know who exactly uh, came up with that term. So it's that's why I prefer uh, literal translations, uh, as literal as possible. Uh, okay, thank you, Lex. See, Commander Scotty uh, uh, from the Ann Arbor Galaxy, can you explain the significance of R.G. Collingwood's book, The Idea of History, and the impact it had on biblical studies? Well, Bultmann mentions it favorably, uh, and as a great example of what historical methodology is, and it's... Uh, properly skeptical, as I say, uh, and uh, it also embraces what Bultmann called independence of, uh, in dependence upon his buddy Martin Heidegger, the hermeneutical circle. Uh, Bultmann said you have to approach the scriptures or any, as you would any other writing with certain questions. You're looking for something in the text, uh, the meaning of life or idea of God or, or whatever, and uh, you may find that your question is not helpful. There's no ready answer to it, and you begin to think, I may be asking the wrong question here. Uh, what does it seem to be concerned with? Uh, let me 
adjust what I'm asking and find another point of entry and uh, see what it wants to say, what it wants to tell me. Uh, and uh, so I revise my questions. I go back and look at the uh, the uh, source material. Now it makes new sense, but it raises other questions. And so there's this back and forth between the text and the uh, uh, the interpreter. Well, Collingwood says the same thing about historical method, that there's this circle. You approach the the any particular historical text, any narrative, any document, with a basic paradigm or framework in mind as a, a general impression you have uh, as to what was happening in the ancient world. But it's always got to be open to revision, and just the way Boltmann said. Uh, you don't make your assumptions a meat grinder uh, through which you feed the, uh, the text to make it come out as the kind of sausage you want. You have to be open to saying, ooh, you know, if my... Uh, uh, theory, my working hypothesis was correct, I'd have to explain away way too much of this. Uh, I better go back to the drawing board. And so it's that circular thing where you you have to approach it with some sort of working hypothesis open to revision, and eventually you kind of narrow it down. Uh, I think Collingwood's book, though though he in it uh, criticizes F.H. Bradley's The Presuppositions of Critical History, he's much more like Bradley than, than his criticisms would suggest, and I think his criticisms are usually off, that he's kind of caricaturing Bradley. Uh, Bradley's already doing what uh, Collingwood said one ought to do instead. Uh, and uh, it's important to note in terms of influence I don't know that Collingwood influenced Bultmann even because Collingwood's predecessor Bradley was already interested in David Friedrich Strauss and the Tübingen School and was in the presuppositions of critical history was trying to set forth that critical methodology and to show how reasonable it was. So I think... Uh, Collingwood, but even more, Bradley, I love them both, uh, they, they are a good key to understanding what's going on in historical criticism of the Bible. But I don't know that either one was a source for the, the methodology of the, the great higher critics. Um, I got them both on my shelf just a few feet away. They're terrific books, well worth uh, careful and repeated reading. Mm, let's see, Mark presumably not the evangelist, because this is written in English, uh, and a perhaps not too reliable source, namely G.R.S. Mead. Uh, oh, I think he's good. I read that the Marcionites thought of Jesus as Christos, meaning enlightened, or actually good, uh, not as Christ, 
or Messiah. Is there any basis in the literature for this assertion, or is it a theosophist's attempt to align Jesus with the ascended master model espoused by that philosophy? No, uh, Mead was a true and great scholar, and part of his greatness is that he took, like Robert Eisenman, he took seriously various sources that other people just ignored and found out that they they had a lot of interesting things to say, like in his book, Did Jesus Live 100 Years B.C.? I mean, you, you see that title and you think, oh, this guy's just a nut. Uh, but no, uh, he has, he, he deals with certain statements from Epiphanius of Salamis, uh, from uh, the, the, the Talmud, the Toledo of Yeshu, and critically sifts all the stuff. He's got a great book on Simon Magus, just all kinds of interesting stuff. The Gnostic John the Baptizer. I, I love Mead. I mean, he, he didn't have access to sources that were discovered later, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I think uh, he, he's really a great scholar. And yeah, uh, we do know that uh, Marcion didn't believe Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, though there would be a Jewish Messiah. He believed that there was the creator God who had given the Torah and who, uh, whose prophets predicted the coming of the Christ. But that had nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus was sent by the loving Father who had not created the world, but through Jesus was issuing an invitation for the miserable creatures of the Creator to jump ship and come on over to be adopted as the children of the Father of of Jesus. And so uh, he referred to Jesus Christos, Jesus the Good. Uh, and uh, he's not the only one. There are manuscripts of Tacitus and, and, and uh, oh, I forget what else, uh, where, where they refer to the founder of Christianity as Crestus. Uh, if, and, and this difficulty, this ambiguity attaches to Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars when he talks about Claudius expelling Jews from Rome because of instigation to rioting by one Crestus. Some people say, oh, he must mean Christ, and he must mean that Christians were raised in hell, preaching Christ among the Jewish population. Well, that's possible, but uh, boy, you really got to read in a lot. But if, if that theory is correct, there's another instance of Jesus being called Crestus. So, uh, yeah, I mean, even without that, we know that was the case with Marcion. So the Judaism and Christianity, not the same religion, nothing to do with each other. And uh, though the Messiah will come for Jews, that's not Jesus. Uh, fascinating uh, writer. Uh, one more question, Mark says, if you don't mind, I'm reading Bart Ehrman's book, Did Jesus Exist?, which is enjoyable, although the repeated declarations that Jesus did exist, quote-unquote, uh, get, get over it, is a bit of an annoyance. And I'm wondering how... Can we explain the literary industry based on the character of Jesus Christ in the early centuries CE if the stories are pure fiction without a historical person to mythologize? Are there other non-Jesus texts from the time and place that would support the idea of a thriving market for speculative fiction? 
Well, you just got to look at any of the myths about any of the other dying and rising savior gods. The story's about Mithras because there was a thriving Mithraic religion all over the Roman Empire. There were myths about Attis and Osiris who had great numbers of followers too. Nobody thinks, well, Plutarch thought there was an actual Osiris who must have been an ancient king of Egypt, but... He's just sort of a euhamerist, right? The the philosophy that said the gods must have existed as famous human beings of a past age. Uh, but uh, there's no reason to think there was ever a historical Mithras or, or Attis or Adonis or Tammuz or Osiris uh, and uh, or a little farther afield uh, that there was any historical Krishna, right? Uh, and uh, so the... Uh, I mean, there are ostensibly historical founders like the Buddha and Muhammad, but there are serious reasons to wonder there, too. It's not an open and shut case. And uh, so you can have a historical figure mythologized. That may be the case with Apollonius of Tyana. It's certainly the case with Caesar Augustus and Cyrus, the Persian emperor. Uh, but uh, you you certainly do have religions and cycles of stories that have uh, centered upon an originally mythic figure. That's not uh, um, implausible in the least. I mean, it's a known phenomenon. So, okay, thanks. Um, Andrew Lawson says, uh, could you speak about when the date of December the 25th was established as Jesus' birthday? I know that the chronography of 354 is the earliest remaining attestation of December 25th. However, the same document lists Sol Invictus, the the Invincible Sun, uh, birthday on the same date. Was December 25th originally associated with Saul Invictus and then appropriated by later Christians? Uh, yeah, it's also Brumalia, uh, the, uh, the, the birth date of, uh, of the god Mithras, his rebirth day, because he was a sun god and it had to do with the, the winter solstice and the, the days growing longer again. And that's mythologized as the sun god being reborn and growing up as the days get longer. Then, you know, toward the end of the year, the days are getting shorter, so he's growing old and dying then to be reborn. Well, um, and and he could have been, no doubt, was mixed up with Sol Invictus, the unconquerable sun. And uh, it does appear that that was borrowed for the, uh, the, the date of Jesus' birthday. And it doesn't necessarily, I mean, I don't think there's any evidence one way or the other on this, but I don't think we can assume that the people that chose that date in the 4th century actually meant this was the day Jesus was born. It may be that they knew no one knew, though Tertullian and others before that do have a couple of guesses. Uh, But... uh, it may simply be that once the Council of Nicaea established the incarnation of God doctrine, they weren't the first to, to believe that, right? But they, it became a huge issue. Was the Logos fully divine or a creation of God? But once they voted that, uh, yes, the Logos was God himself, then suddenly the nativity of Jesus became of paramount importance. 
earlier the Christians had celebrated Epiphany, the baptism of Jesus. Of course, that gets pulled into the nativity orbit too, right, with the visit of the wise men. Uh, but um, originally, and still, you have the visit of the wise guys and the baptism of Jesus um, celebrated on January 6th, Epiphany. And, and that also originally was a solstice date according to a different calendar. That was the birthday of Eon or Ion, the, the god of eternal time, who was related to Mithras as well. What a huge galaxy of stuff. Uh, so um, people were already celebrating Brumalia and the birthday of Sol Invictus and all that stuff. And Christians now decided, well, we we got to celebrate the incarnation. The birth of Jesus is the beginning of the incarnation. Well, who knows when Jesus was born? So let's choose a day to celebrate it. Like today is uh, stinking President's Day. Most of those guys I have no desire to celebrate. And the, the darn post office is closed and the bank is closed, as I found out trying to do my errands there. Uh, well, uh, they were celebrating these days already. And like President's Day, it's no particular president's birthday. Let's just celebrate them uh, uh, all that day. So same with Jesus. Look, this is a holiday that Christians grew up celebrating uh, in a pagan uh, milieu. So let's give them something Christian to celebrate. We don't want them going to these wild uh, Brumalia office parties and stuff. So let's co-opt the day like uh, the Catholic Church did with May Day, wasn't it? Uh, Oh, man, or was it Labor Day? I forget where they decided to, uh, if to since that had Marxist uh, coloring to it, they decided, no, let's make it the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Uh, same sort of a thing. Let's come up with a Christian counterpart instead. Uh, and uh, Or it's like Halloween. Fanatical fundamentalists think uh, that uh, Halloween is all about Satan. And so they have innocuous and boring harvest festivals and nonsense like that. Uh, well, same thing. Let's come up with a, a Christian counterpart. I mean, it uh, it was for a genuinely religious reason, right? Oh, man, yeah, we want to celebrate the Incarnation. Well, when? Well, how about this day? It's already uh, a big holiday. So I don't think it's anything phony or opportunistic about it necessarily, but that's apparently what happened. Uh, let's see. Uh, Lachlan here. Basic question. Feel free to use the accent of the bridge keeper from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, what are the differences between a theophany and an avatar? Uh, well, I think it would be that a theophany is uh, supposed to be docetic like when uh, the angel of God appears before Mr. and Mrs. Manoah to announce the, the birth uh, or the conception, I guess, of Samson. They offer him food, but he doesn't eat it and just uh, causes it to burst into flame so the smoke can ascend as a sacrifice. And uh, theophanies were like angels, but it was it was God in, in uh, human should I say humanoid form? 
but uh, more docetic, uh, like a hologram, not really an incarnation, whereas an avatar, which means a descent, literally, uh, is a flesh and blood incarnation of a god who may even die, as some of those uh, incarnations of Vishnu did. Shiva also had uh, a whole chain of incarnations, avatars. And so I think that, as I understand it, that's the difference. What is your name? What is your Christology? Um, is this also Lachlan? Yeah, I think so. On my way to work, I was doing a satanic thought experiment. I decided to reverse the elements of 1 Corinthians 13.2, and lo and behold, what came out was Bertie Crumb's advice to Harry Potter. Is that right? Bertie, yeah. Uh... Uh, let's see, Avada Kedavra's a curse that needs a powerful bit of magic behind it. You could all get your wands out now and point them at me and say the words, and I doubt I'd get so much as a nosebleed. Uh, quotes. Uh, in other words, though I speak with the tongues of monsters and demons, if I have not hate, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Uh, more of a comment than a question, but is this something you've seen in studying Antichrist fiction? Uh, you mean, like, does there have to be a power or an intention behind the words for it to work? I think of, uh, in a great novel by uh, James Blish called um, Black Easter... This guy goes to a, uh, a, a magician and he draws up a contract with him to pay him big bucks if he can kill God, uh, which he does. And uh, during the preparations, the sorcerer tells him that uh, you have to say the words just right even if they have been corrupted over the centuries because uh, it's been shown in magical practice that these syllables do the trick. Um, Origen says the same thing, oddly, in the second or what, the late second century, I guess, or maybe the beginning of the third, that you have to say the words for exorcism and so on exactly uh, as if the formula has its own power. It's like consecrating the Eucharist. The priest can be a child-molesting drunk. It doesn't matter. He uh, isn't consecrating the host by contagion from his own holiness or something. There's a big, big thing in the Donatist controversy, right? When St. Augustine said, uh, what is it, ex opera? I can't, don't know my Latin. Really, uh, that the thing itself uh, works, that the priest has been ordained and given the grace, the charism of uh, being able to make the bread and the wine into the body and blood. It doesn't depend on him. It's a gift of grace to him, and it works even if he is an unworthy vessel, because it's not him who does it. It's the, the formula, hoc est corpum Christi and all of that. By the way, abracadabra, from what I've heard, started out as a Gnostic charm against toothaches. My wife Carol should probably try that. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, so, yeah. 
Um, a question from Abdul Daoud, first prophet of the Aten. That's the sun disk, right? Oh, see. First, I've written three or four times now, but I've always failed to mention how grateful I am to you for such an excellent podcast and eye-opening insights. I'm fascinated with mythology and have sought for years to explain to myself my decades-long inability to see beyond the unsupported, contradictory understandings I held as a believer. Your podcast did not turn me into a non-believer, but has been of great help to me in reconciling myself with my past belief and more recent unbelief. I'm sure glad to hear that, Abdel Daoud. This question is a simple one. In 2010, you answered a question about how Luke and Matthew both named Jesus' parents Joseph and Mary while having such radically different and incompatible birth narratives. You suggested a tradition independent of Mark which did name his parents. You've also mentioned that the Toleroth Yeshu may be much older than is normally considered or that it may be based on ancient sources. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, Hugh Schoenfield is right about that. It really looks like it's an only slightly edited version of a Jewish Christian gospel. Schoenfield argued it was the second century gospel according to the Hebrews. I don't know if I'd be that specific, but I suppose it could be because it, if this were really a nasty satire of Jesus, it would read a lot worse than it does. It actually has Jesus quoting prophecies about himself left and right with no attempt at refutation. It's really a remarkable work. Uh, anyway, um, is it possible that Matthew's and Luke's nativity stories are not based on Christian traditions of Jesus' family tree, but were instead written against the Toledoth Yeshu or its predecessor texts? I uh, kind of think there's something to that, especially since Matthew's gospel starts out that, if it were in Hebrew, the Toledoth of Jesus Christ, the generations, because that's what Toledoth Yeshu means, the generations of Jesus. And why does uh, he take the trouble to show that Jesus was descended from uh, David and back to Abraham? as if some were saying Jesus was not a Jew, as the Toledoth Yeshu says. Well, it sort of says it. It admits his mother was Jewish, uh, Mary, but his father was a Roman soldier, Pandera. But I suspect that, yeah, and the the trip to Egypt, um, it's been suggested as an attempt to rebut the idea that we already find in the second century in Celsus, the middle Platonist critic of Christianity, that, oh, yeah, sure, Jesus did miracles. He learned magic tricks in Egypt. Well, this is an attempt to say, oh, he went to Egypt, all right, but not for that. So, yeah, I think that could well be. Anyhow, uh, let's see. Uh, that would account for both Gospels being aware of the names of Joseph, Pandera, and Mary, Miriam. It would also account for the radical differences in the stories. The evangelists couldn't let the Toledoth narrative go unchallenged, but they had to create something that would be believable out of the rumors. Luke handled it by the virgin birth, while Matthew drew attention to similar histories among Israelite heroines. Let me interrupt you again. Uh, in Jane Shaberg's 
very fascinating book, The Illegitimacy of Jesus. You know, I've always thought maybe she should have called it Jesus the Bastard, but she already had somebody um, shoot her car full of holes uh, and... uh, who who knows what sort of retaliation she'd have gotten. Anyway, she argues that uh, Matthew is actually admitting that uh, Mary was impregnated by uh, somebody other than Joseph and that he's trying to say, look, this is not unprecedented. Look how God worked through Tamar and Bathsheba and Ruth and Rahab. Same sort of thing. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Uh, yeah, okay, um... Um, let's see. Luke handled it by the virgin birth, while Matthew drew attention to similar histories among the Israelite heralds. I'm sorry, that's just what I was saying. I uh, should have uh, read ahead. This may be what you've said several times, and if so, I apologize if I've missed the point, but might it imply that the existing narrative about Jesus was very close to the taller of the issue? The implication being that both evangelists did, again, create their stories out of whole cloth rather than a rec- than record a tradition for two different, uh, or two different traditions. And may the black sun forever curse you with wisdom, Abdul Daoud, first prophet of the Aten. Uh, well, my only hesitation about this, and I think there is very likely truth to this, just like, by the way, the business with... Uh, Uh, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is buried in a garden, and Mary Magdalene thinks that the gardener has transferred the body. Well, there's a more embellished version of this in, uh, I think, also in the questions of Bartholomew, but certainly in the Toledo Fieshu as well. And uh, this looks like it could well be a, a rejoinder to the Toledo Fieshu tradition. But one thing you have to keep in mind, some of the uh, most striking parallels between the nativity stories are other are two Jewish accounts uh, Hellenistic Jewish accounts of the nativity of Moses Luke seems to have used that of uh, the the antiquities of pseudo Philo uh, and Matthew used Josephus and uh, there are some, I, I go into some of these, it's not new with me. I mean, I got it from other people. Uh, but I, I describe this stuff in, I think it's uh, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man. But I wouldn't rule out the uh, Toledoth hypothesis, too. So thank you. Abdel Daoud. Joey. Early Christianity appears to be more diverse than post-325 Christianity. Doesn't that point toward a mythical Jesus? If Jesus existed, it would have started small and gotten more diverse. Marcionism, Gnosticism, and other forms of Christianity sprang up, and the side who won after 325 narrowed what was a very diverse movement. Well, it wouldn't prove it, but it does seem a bit more consistent with a mythical Jesus about whom nobody knew much of anything because it was nothing to know originally. Uh, there, uh, I, I uh, 
asked Bert and Mac if I was correct in inferring that he was saying that the Jesus of the New Testament really does not come from one particular root. Now, Mac, of course, thinks that there was a historical Jesus. He was kind of a cynic sage, but he also talks about these, he talks about the various Jesus movements and Christ cults already visible behind the New Testament. And I kind of softly critique and elaborate his view in my book, uh, Deconstructing Jesus, uh, where my point is that the Jesus Christ of Orthodox Christianity is not the root, but rather the fruit of Christianity, and that many different sources went into it. And I asked Mac if that was what he thought, and indeed he does. Uh, and uh, so now you could say that, as Bultmann always did, that there was a Jesus of Nazareth, but as uh, pe- people from many religious backgrounds became Christians, they brought favorite conceptions, theologies, and myths and mixed them in. Well, that would account for it, too. So it doesn't by any means prove that there was no historical Jesus, but it uh, I think the diversity really undermines any likelihood that if there was a historical Jesus, he was the figure we see in the Gospels, because it's not just one figure. What was he, the incarnate Logos, the Gnostic Revealer, uh, the... Uh, priestly messiah, a political revolutionist, a feminist. Uh, what was he? He's a miracle worker, a magician, a cynic sage. I mean, you can make a case for all of these, but they can't very well all be true, it seems to me. Uh, so, by the way, two good books on this uh, about the diversity. One is Walter Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity, and uh, a more recent one that uh, doesn't get quite as lost in the weeds. Uh, It's a a popularization in the good sense, I think it's good, it's the same sort of thing I practice, Lost Christianities. Uh, I think uh, both of those are, are good books about this, the diversity Uh, Well, also, uh, James D.G. Dunn, whose work I, a lot of his work I really like, though I think he doesn't think much of mine, uh, he did a book I just have always found immensely fascinating called Unity and Diversity in the New Testament. This is before he began the process of conservative retrenchment. Um, I mean, all of his work is deeply scholarly, no question about that. But he was a little bit more willing to be adventurous, I think, back when he wrote this. It's a terrific book. Another great book he did, by the way, not quite on point here, is uh, Jesus and the Spirit, where he uh, deals with... uh, all the stuff in the New Testament about charismatic gifts. It is just full of insight into the texts. I think it's terrific. Okay, yeah. Um, Who is next here? Let me scroll down to find that name. Uh, Jonathan Rutherford. Ah, from Melbourne, Australia last night. Carol and I went out to the Outback to have some kangaroo burgers for Valentine's Day. Anyway, uh, 
given in your previous episode, December 1st, you asked if any of your listeners had any other thoughts on the young man in Mark 1452. I thought I would share my view. Uh, I must, however, give all the credit to a little-known amateur scholar, R.G. Price, not to be confused with you, who made the insight in his wonderful essay available online, The Gospel of Mark as Theological Allegory. Price argues very persuasively that the naked man scene is part of an extended literary allusion within Mark chapter 14 to Amos chapter 2. Amos is about God's coming judgment on the Judean Jews, which Price argues is a key underlying theme of Mark's gospel. The first allusion, allusion begins in Amos 2.6, which reads, Thus saith the Lord, for three sins of Israel and for four... Goes my screen again. Oh, come on. It usually behaves better. It uh, must be mad at me today. Blue, blue, blue. What the heck? What is going on? Okay. Um, oh. Uh, for three sins of Israel and for four I will not turn away from him because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for sandals. This text, with its reference to selling the righteous for silver, has inspired the betrayal of Jesus by Judas for money, quote-unquote, in Mark fourteen ten through 12, in which Matthew, perhaps picking up on the allusion, explicitly links with silver. Or Matthew's getting, he's embellishing it out of uh, Zechariah, I think, chapter... 11 or 12. Further on in Amos 2, 12, there's a passage which reads, But you gave the consecrated ones wine to drink, and you commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. In Mark 14, 25, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. At this point of the narrative, therefore, Jesus is consecrated. Later on, during the crucifixion scene, Jesus is forced to drink wine, thereby completing the allusion to Amos, which accuses the Judean Jews of giving wine to drink to the consecrated. I guess that means like the Nazarites, right, who weren't supposed to be imbibing. Now we come to the mysterious young man in Mac. This scene ends the three-part allusion to Amos. In Amos 2.16, we read, The naked shall flee away in that day, says the Lord. Mark's young naked man fleeing away at night is obviously an allusion to this passage, something we can even be more confident about given the prior allusions to Amos referred to above. I think we can be very confident that this is indeed what Mark was doing, especially because it follows a similar pattern to the other allusions Mark makes to the Old Testament. For example, the Passion narrative is famously carved out of allusions to three separate passages with Psalm 22. So, Mark seems to enjoy constructing his narrative out of individual lines carved out of whole passages within the Old Testament. I'd be interested to know if you've come across this theory before. Apart from Price, an amateur, surprisingly, I've not seen any other scholars refer to it. What are your thoughts? Well, I have read many times that uh, the, the, the streaker in Gethsemane is is based on the third Amos reference. I uh, don't remember if I've seen people 
uh, combine these references to Amos. That that may be an innovation, and it sounds pretty good to me. But the idea that that's where he got the idea of uh, uh, of the streaker that is an oldie and a goodie. So uh, just because this guy is an amateur, let no one discount what he says, right? Uh, not that you're doing that. Obviously, you're doing the opposite. I commend you on taking him seriously. It really doesn't matter who you are. It matters what you're saying, and uh, that's a good one. Bakari says, I've been spending the last few years reading the mythicist scholars, and I find your and their arguments very compelling, but I keep wondering why, if Jesus probably didn't exist, how did Christianity become so popular? Can you recommend a book that provides a critical history of the rise of Christianity from a non-theological analysis? Indeed I can. Uh, an excellent book on this is Rodney Stark, just like Tony Stark, um, The Rise of Christianity uh, from, I think, Princeton University Press. It is really, really fascinating. Uh, whoops, there's uh, Commissioner Gordon calling again. Okay, yeah, uh, dispensed with that. Yeah, th that's the book you want to read. It's it's really terrific. and um, But, of course, uh, Mithraism became the religion of the Roman Empire before Christianity, and there was never any Mithras. Uh, I think the, uh, the uh, question of whether there's a historical founder really has nothing to do with uh, the success of the religion. Um, but that's the one you want, surely. Uh, let's see. Uh, who's next? Where's that name? Boy, this is a long one. Holy mackerel. Good God, this is long. Ah, from our buddy the trickster. Oh, okay, yeah. He always has good stuff to say. Um, back up to the top. Jack and the Beanstalk. It's quite a climb, yeah. Dear Chris Kringle, or someone who looks rather like him at least. Ho, 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 trickster here. Of course, this came in December, right? Sorry. Uh, but this is rather a long one, so you might not want to do the Scottish accent this time. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't. Here's some festive thoughts I've been having recently on the subject of Joseph and Mary. Um, you'll probably not get to these until February or March, but never mind. How'd you know? I tell you, you're a prophet. Uh, the synoptic problem fascinates me. I'm not sure we'll ever get to a complete resolution of the problem, but as of now, I'm reasonably convinced that Mark is the earliest gospel we have, and that both Matthew and Luke used Mark as their primary source when writing their own gospels. Mark, probably written before Luke, certainly used Mark as the basis and template for his gospel. He includes almost all of Mark, and some of it is even word for word the same. But in writing his own gospel, Matthew sometimes leaves some bits of Mark out, presumably because he does not like them, modifies some bits of Mark, presumably to make them more coherent with his own beliefs, and then adds in lots of other stuff that Mark doesn't have. Some of this may have come from other sources, some of this may have been the invention of Matthew. 
I agree completely so far. Uh, one of Matthew's additions to Mark regards Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, mother of Jesus, only appears in one verse of Mark. Mark 6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters Matilda, Penelope, and whatever I hear with us? And they, and they took offense at him. There's another character in Mark who is often assumed to be Mary, the mother of Jesus, but this character is never named as such or even implied to be such in the gospel. This is this Mary is Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, Mark 15.40. Mary, the mother of Joseph, Mark 15.47, and Mary, the mother of James, Mark 16.1. There are a few possibilities here. One is, of course, that this Mary was actually the mother of Jesus and that James the Younger and Joseph were two of Jesus' brothers. The problem here is that Mark, who quite often calls a spade a spade, never says so. Why would Mark place the mother of Jesus at the tomb scene and not say directly who she was? Is this one of those places where Mark is trying to make the reader work things out for himself? See Robert M. Fowler, the great book, uh, Let the Reader Understand. I don't think so. There is no great insight to be gained by working out that Jesus' mother was at the tomb, so I find myself considering another possibility. What if Mark 6.3 is not original to Mark? We know that the text of the Gospels has been modified as it passed through the hands of those who copied it. Sometimes they inserted stuff. What if this verse was one of the insertions? Well, why would anyone do that? Before I get there, think, uh, think what the implications would be for Mark's Gospel if 6.3 was not there. The story of Jesus would never mention named family members. The only place they would show up would be in chapter 3, where they get instantly dismissed as irrelevant, and Jesus doesn't interact with them. If Mark 6.3 was not part of the original, then Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, would only be described in this manner to distinguish her from Mary Magdalene. There would be no connection to Jesus implied. She was just some follower who happened to be called Mary. Maybe James and Joseph were important people when the gospel was being written, so that's why she is designated this way. For instance, okay, so our guy James wasn't important in the Jesus story as it happened, but look, his mother was right there at the center of things. So why would anyone insert Mark 6.3? Well, to big up the role of James and the other brothers. For instance, okay, so our guy James wasn't important in the Jesus story as it happened, but he was his brother. By adding in this verse, the gospel editor makes James and Mary, his mother, become major players. So there's a possible agenda here which would uh, add the verse in. So for the rest of this, I'm going to assume that Mark 6.3 is not part of the original and was added early on before Matthew got his hands on the copy of Mark that he would modify into his own gospel. I can't prove this point. I don't necessarily believe this point, but I'm going to speculate on the assumption anyway. Sometimes that takes you interesting places. But before we go on with speculation about Mary, we need to do some other speculation about Joseph. 
Joseph, husband of Mary and presumed father of Jesus, does not feature in the Gospel of Mark. He simply is not there, and there is no role for him to play in Mark's story. The only two Josephs in Mark are Joseph, brother of James and son of Mary, who is named in the Gospel but doesn't feature as a character, and Joseph of Arimathea, who appears abruptly in Mark 15:43 through 46, uh, asks for Jesus' body and buries it, but has no other role in the Gospel. Is it possible that these two Josephs are the same character? Uh, no, I'm sorry, it is possible that these two Josephs are the same character. Indeed, without Mark 3, there really is no need to specify Joseph as the son of Mary unless he is, has some role to play in the story or in the early church. Uh, please note, James certainly has a role in the early church, but Joseph? So it seems possible that Joseph is introduced in Mark 15:40 as Mary's son just before he appears in the story to play his part in the story. I don't think I'm overstating my case too much to say that the two most important characters at the end of the gospel story, one involved in the burial of Jesus and one involved in the discovery of the empty tomb, were Joseph and Mary, actually two Marys. Let me just say that again for emphasis, the two named characters at the end of the gospel who oversee the burial and find the empty tomb are called Mary and Joseph. Other sources, not Mark, say these are the names of the parents of Jesus there at the very beginning of the story. Mary and Joseph at the start, and Joseph and Mary at the end. What are the chances of that? Well, pretty slim if this is a real story, but not at all unlikely if there is any literary invention going on. My conjecture is this, that between the writing of Mark's gospel and the writing of Matthew's gospel, the Jesus story grew in the telling, possibly in written form as a modified version of Mark, or as a proto-Matthew now lost, and new characters called Mary and Joseph were invented to bookend the gospel, to match the Joseph and Mary at the end. Why call them the same names? Well, because the writers of books in Bible times, Old and New Testaments, loved writing in chiastic structures. Perhaps David Oliver Smith would care to comment uh, in order to give their story symmetry. That is, the first part of the story is mirrored by the last part, and the second part is mirrored by the second to last, and so on. Mark's gospel has no birth story to mirror the death story, so someone invented it and simply used the two names that were already there at the end to mirror the beginning. Having named Jesus' mother as Mary in this way, it now makes sense to tie up the loose ends by inserting Mark 6.3 and implying that James's mother Mary is the same as Jesus' mother Mary, which only goes to boost the profile of James. So by the time Matthew and Luke write their Gospels, tradition has it that Jesus' mother was called Mary and his presumed father was called Joseph. It is interesting to note that both Matthew and Luke have Mary, the mother of James, at the empty tomb, but don't join the dots to make her Mary, the mother of Jesus. Meanwhile, or possibly much later, John has the mother of Jesus at the crucifixion, not the empty tomb, but never calls her Mary. 
make of all that what you will. What does the geek think? Well, I, I suspected you were headed the chiastic route. That would kind of make sense. Uh, I do think Mark 6-3 is um, put there. Well, the, the uh, let's say that uh, part of the passage reflects a piece of tradition that lists the the pillars, the uh, brothers of Jesus, so-called, who uh, brothers of the Lord, I should say, who ran uh, the Jerusalem church. And that, uh, oh boy, this gets into all kinds of stuff. I think originally it was, uh, I think Joseph was in the previous line and it said isn't this the the son of Mary and Joseph and the brother of James Judas and Simon but who knows uh, okay I think nonetheless it's a list of the pillars just like the list of the twelve elsewhere in Mark was it original or not? Well, it certainly is not a natural part of the scene, right? His sisters are not mentioned, which uh, kind of makes you think that uh, somebody felt that women couldn't be church leaders even if they were related to Jesus, and uh, that these names are there to uh, give these people clout, because otherwise it would simply say, are not his brothers and sisters among us. They don't name the sisters. They wouldn't have named the brothers. So when was that added? Did Mark add it to a pre-existing piece of tradition? Um, I wouldn't be surprised, but I think that whole story of Jesus repudiating his family is a polemical reversal of the story in Exodus 18, is it, where Jethro brings the uh, Moses' wife and children to him once the thing with Yul Brynner is over. Uh, and uh, whereas in Exodus he listens to the advice of his father-in-law uh, and, and Jesus would have listened to the concerns of his relatives that he was too busy for his own good and that's what motivated him to choose the twelve to share the burden. Mark has reversed it so that Jesus chooses the twelve on his own initiative and then the, the relatives come and he repudiates them. Oh boy, what a mess, but uh, this is so complex it's hard to say. So uh, the list of names is secondary, but did Mark add them or did a redactor, a copyist of Mark, uh, add them. That's tough to say. Uh, Eisenman, if I've got this straight, says that this this woman must have been understood, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, that she must have been understood originally as the mother of Jesus, but that she has been distanced from Jesus just as the brothers are later understood or misunderstood or tendentiously reinterpreted as his cousins. Uh, so now that would uh, that would imply that Mark 
already has some kind of immaculate conception idea. And I suppose that's possible, but it's certainly odd that he doesn't have a nativity story. Mark appears to be adoptionist or separationist, to use Bart Ehrman's handy term, that uh, Jesus was the channeler for uh, the Christ spirit. By the way, if you want to look that up, he, he co- I think this is where he... Well, I know it's in this book, whether it's first instance or not, I don't know, but I believe uh, Bart coined this, and it's in his great book, The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. So I think it's fascinating and worth pursuing. You might want to make an article or a book out of it. stuff. It's it's uh, fascinating stuff. It could have happened that way. The uh, and the chiasm thing as the pivot point uh, that would make some sense. I hope uh, Dave uh, David Oliver Smith will weigh in on this. I'm reading a manuscript of his right now where he uh, tries to show that Mark is one vast chiasm. I'm uh, hoping he's going to, well, I'm sure he's going to proceed with uh, publication on that. He's he's very ingenious and has a very sharp eye studying the text, as you do, obviously. Trickster. Another from Commander Scotty. When do you think the first tangible signs of supersessionism, that is the idea that Judaism has been outstripped and replaced by Christianity, become truly visible and with whom? In other words, which writers first give unmistakable utterance to this idea? And what is the trajectory of the tradition once it, once it is set in motion? I think you find this in uh, Justin Martyr. He may be the earliest uh, exemplar of this around the middle to the last quarter of the second century in his dialogue with Trifo, who may be the historical rabbi Tarfan, Justin says, uh, well, to quote your scriptures, but really on second thought, they're not yours, they're ours. That's, uh, that's supersessionist. Um, uh, let's see, uh, some say the Epistle of Barnabas, which may be a bit earlier than Justin, that it is uh, supersessionist, if not downright anti-Semitic, because it says that Jews have grossly misunderstood the uh, the Old Testament, that it was all allegorical about Christ, and they have goofed it up. Um I'm not sure that's correct, though. I suggest in uh, my introduction to the Epistle of Barnabas in the pre-Nicene New Testament that his approach is not that different from some of the prophets in the Old Testament. I'm not sure if it's really supersessionist or not. Um, The Epistle to Diognetus, supposedly 2nd century, that speaks of Christians being a third race beyond Jews and Gentiles. That kind of implies it. Uh, but um, it's difficult to know whether the, any canonical New Testament documents say that. It seems to me the Gospel of John does. With all of these comparisons between 
symbolically between Judaism and Christianity, like the water jars in Cana. Right? They're there for ritual ablution and hold hundreds of gallons of water. And Jesus changes the water into wine, sort of implying that Judaism was pretty thin stuff, uh, but Christianity has replaced it, and it's better. At the Feast of Lights, Hanukkah, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Uh, and uh, various other things. Uh, I am the uh, the true vine, or as Israel was. It seems to me to imply that that uh, non-Christian Judaism has been superseded. This isn't as crude as it might sound, because they like Acts invokes the thing from Deuteronomy where Moses says, God will raise up a prophet like me and whoever does not heed his words will be cut off from the people. Uh, Well, that implies that uh, all of you Jews who do not believe in Jesus are no longer part of this continuity of salvation history, starting with Abraham and so on. It's, uh, you see, if you see what I mean, that isn't ex- that's like a sectarian jewish claim if you're not with us you know you're you're really not qualifying anymore like john the baptist says to jews who were fellow jews who were coming out to be baptized and he said look don't go saying to yourselves oh, we don't need your baptism uh, we've got abraham uh, for our pedigree and he said look if that's all god wanted children of abraham he could create some new ones right now out of these stones well, what is that saying? It's saying it matters to be the children of Abraham, but you guys don't seem to know what that means. Uh, and uh, likewise in Romans, where I, I think you have a more or less incoherent combination of three different tracts on the Jewish-Christian identity problem, it says that... Uh, that God, it quotes the story of Elijah, God has preserved or kept back for himself a remnant. So uh, you're not exactly saying, uh, Jews, you're out of here, forget it, your covenant is over, we've taken it over, which I think Calvinists and Catholics do kind of say that all when they say things like the promises to Israel are really figurative and they're about the church that's the kind of thing John Nelson Darby who started the Plymouth Brethren sect and invented dispensationalism that's the kind of thing that made him bristle and he says you can't tell me that these Old Testament prophecies about Israel and her theocratic destiny and the Messiah and all that stuff are really about the church nah no, uh, in fact, the Old Testament prophets know nothing of Christianity. That's all a parenthesis. Uh, this was a big surprise, the dispensation of grace. God has a separate destiny, the one he's always talked about for Israel, and it will come true in the millennial kingdom and so on. Christianity is a whole different thing, though the two will coincide, uh, that uh, eventually in the last times there'll be a mass conversion of Jews to Christianity, but of course, Jesus being their Messiah, that's no conflict. 
this is very similar to the double covenant ecumenical theology of many Christians and Jews, where Jews say, we don't need Jesus, though he may have been a good prophet, but God sent him uh, to get all those Gentiles into the biblical fold. Uh, And uh, conversely, ecumenical Christians say, Uh, Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, but Jews don't have to believe that. The whole thing with Abraham and the Torah and all that was not conditional on that. And and that has its own integrity, as it says in Romans. Uh, the, uh, The covenants and promises of God are not revocable and haven't been revoked. Uh, And so you can have a double covenant view, like dispensationalism does, in my opinion, uh, and uh, you can say that, nah, they're out of this. Judaism is just one more false religion like Hinduism or the Charlie Manson cult. Uh, only Christianity. You, you, that's raw uh, supersessionism, right? Uh, but uh, the idea in the New Testament seems to me to be more of a, more analogous to uh, Lubavitcher Judaism. Uh, or uh, Hasidism in general. The rest of you Jews, our fellow Jews, you're missing the boat. We've really got the the latest chapter of Revelation in Judaism, but that's not to say those who aren't with the program are damned or something. Uh, So uh, the New Testament, even the Gospel of John, which has all these nasty-sounding things about the Jews, the Jews, the Jews... Uh, It's hard to know where, I mean, that comes as close to real supersessionism. But Matthew, who has some things that people take to be anti-Semitic, I'm not really sure they are. That one is is very definitely a sectarian schism situation. Matthew certainly regards himself and Jesus as the rightful heir to Judaism. Uh, he just disputes the right of the Yavna rabbis uh, to to the leadership, though he's even willing to accept that uh, and uh, outwardly. And uh, it's really fascinating. So uh, I think the earliest, as far as I can remember, overt supersessionism probably comes with Justin Martyr. I uh, welcome people who are more patristically versed than I am to correct me if I'm wrong about this, though. Uh, Robert uh, Flatow, a listener from London. Uh, I was listening to your June 16th Bible Geek while you were discussing critically annotated Bibles that are not written by apologists and asked for recommendations. The Skeptics Annotated Bible is both a website and app. It annotates the King James from the atheist viewpoint. Categories include absurdity, injustice, cruelty, etc. Interestingly, the website also has an annotated Quran and Book of Mormon. Uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, this I would regard almost as a faith-dominated. Uh, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. Uh, annotated Bible in that I think it is reading the Bible against the grain and and trying to uh, find things to reject and vilify. 
the Bible is like the Iliad and the Odyssey. There's a lot of uh, stuff that does not agree with modern standards, and it's a good thing we've transcended them. But it's uh, the, the venom inspired by the disappointment that the Bible is not the inspired word of God. And of course, it's not. It's good to realize that. Uh, that venom can, I think, uh, make it hard to even understand the Bible. And uh, uh, so uh, there are some, like the Oxford Annotated Bible, where the contributors are believers of one type or another, but often not fundamentalists. That would be worth uh, getting. Uh, I'm not trying to say don't read the Skeptics Annotated Bible. I'm the last to say don't read anything. Uh, read everything. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure. Um, of course, let me be self-serving here and uh, say that my the book I'm working on now, The Holy Fable, uh, it, uh, the subtitle is um, The Bible Undistorted by Faith. I'm trying to really walk the line there. But I appreciate that. People ought to know about the Skeptics Annotated Bible if they don't already. Thanks, Rob, fellow Robert. <laughs> Tom Salkup. I've heard the Gospel of John given a later date due to its more complex theology. The idea is that this type of theology took considerable time to develop, thus its later date. Now, when I read a book such as the Apocryphon of John from the Nag Hammadi discovery, it too seems to have a very complex theology. If we follow the logic that leads to giving John a later date, then could this mean that the theology of the Apocryphon, a secret book of John, began developing much earlier on? Irenaeus most likely mentions the book around 180. So could this theology be a good hundred years or so in the development before it ever gets put to papyrus, thus pushing Gnosticism into the embryonic stages of Christianity? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's the case. Um, it seems to me that Gnosticism was already there, that it didn't just spin off of Christianity. Uh, if anything, well, there there seem to be both Christian Gnosticism, where some people did interpret a simpler Christianity in a more abstract way, the way people still do, uh, uh, including any kind of traditional orthodoxy. But there was also, uh, um, what did I just say, Gnostic Christianity or Christian Gnosticism. Oh boy, I'm losing track of this thing. Um, they're Christians that went on a Gnostic, in a Gnostic direction, but they're also Gnostics who were Christianized, like the Apocalypse of Adam in the Nag Hammadi text. That seems clearly to have been a pure Zoroastrian text that added Christianity. Some of the Sethian documents in Nag Hammadi certainly seem to have added Jesus on at the end. It may be that the Sethian Gnosticism was perishing by attrition and they kind of uh, joined uh, some Christian churches. And uh, I wouldn't be too surprised. Uh, our book of Melchizedek in the Nag Hammadi texts seems to have been Melchizedekian, but not Gnostic, and then it was overlaid by Gnostic material, 
which certainly fits because we have patristic references to there being two different Melchizedek sects, uh, one Gnostic, one not. They probably eventually merged. Uh, and uh, so uh, there are Gnostics who become Christians and interpret Christianity in terms of Gnosticism. There are probably also Christians who uh, independently or uh, developed in a Gnostic direction. I mean, that kind of thing happens all the time, right? Uh, you raise certain questions and you come up with certain answers that parallel those of earlier groups that you never even heard of, like uh, the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. It appears in uh, Protestantism. It appears in Jodo Shinshu Buddhism without any probable historical connection. They just had the same questions and came up with the same options to answer them. But I think uh, a non-Christian, pre-Christian Gnosticism, some of it Platonic, some of it Zoroastrian, some of it Jewish, uh, did make its way into Christianity at the very formative stages. And in fact, my view crazy though it may seem, uh, is that uh, the whole notion of Jesus dying on the cross to save humanity uh, is, a is a historicization of the Gnostic myth of the primal man, the man of light, being ripped apart by the archons to steal his photons to enliven the uh, mud pie creation of the demiurge. And uh, eventually this got uh, historicized into a, a man dying at the hands, not of cosmic powers, but of secular authorities and so on. So I think uh, Gnosticism is mighty important. Um, oh, the uh, Gospel of John would be a good example of this, the way Bultmann interpreted it, and I think he's he's right. The Gospel of John, or at least the prologue, uh, was originally written about John the Baptist by members of the Mandean Gnostic sect, which still exists today, uh, and uh, that uh, once uh, a Mandean John the Baptist follower converted to Christianity, he brought it with him, but tried to say, the light that enlightens every man wasn't John. Oh, no, no. He's in the poem. I can't get rid of him. But let me add a clumsy insertion that says, now, he wasn't the light. He only came to bear witness to the light. Now, back to the song lyrics. Uh, and uh, so that this gospel was written by an ex-Gnostic or an ex-John the Baptist Gnostic. But then what about the rest of the gospel? Well, there are enormous, frequent parallels between the gospel of John and these monologues of the divine revealer and similar materials in the Mandean texts. <laughs> it's a little hard to imagine that uh, the Gnostic material didn't get uh, Christianized in that gospel. Probably the most confusing pseudo-answer you've ever gotten. Monk MC says, Salutations, Geeky One. I was just curious about the origins of the ichthus symbol and its relationship to early Christianity. I was told in Sunday school that it had something to do with the miracle of the fishes and loaves. Is this true? Uh, I don't think so, though who knows? I mean, at some point it may have been interpreted that way, but ichthus is, uh, is the word for fish in Greek. But it's an acronym, right? Every, the first letter, I'm sorry, each letter in the word 
stands for a separate word of which it is the first letter. This became, I think this was called notarikon in uh, the Kabbalistic study of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so ichthus stands for Jesus Christos uh, Theosoter uh, uh, th- th- yeah, Theos Huios Soter uh, Ichthus that is Jesus Christ God's Son Savior and uh, it was used as a sign in times of persecution to, people would draw it in the dust in front of a, a safe house and Christians were traveling if it were too hot to be out in public that they would uh, be given refuge there However, this all might be a reinterpretation because apparently the Pythagoreans long before had used the same symbol. And they also have a story, a miraculous story about fish uh, that became the basis of John's version of the uh, miraculous catch of fish. So it may at some point have had something to do with the loaves and fish story, but I, I don't think so. I don't think that was the origin of it. Thanks, Monk. Alex, our pal, the PhD student in Ohio. I was recently having a discussion with a relative concerning the historical Jesus. This relative was raised a Christian but never quite took it seriously and no longer believes in gods. Anyway, she acknowledged that the miracle stories of the New Testament are probably fictitious or literary in origin. I replied that if the stories aren't legendary or mythological and are largely rewrites from the Old Testament, then there's really no data attesting to a historical figure at all. In an attempt to show that we can't just assume a historical figure on the basis of legends, I brought up the parallel of Herodotus believing that Hercules must have been a historical strongman. I was amazed when she told me that she agreed with Herodotus that Hercules must have been based on a real person, too. She opined that all religious figures and gods are based on... Oh, there goes the darn screen again. What is the matter? Uh, Okay. Uh, She opined that all religious figures and gods are based on a real person who was lionized by his or her community, about which contemporary or subsequent people told stories. I didn't quite know what to say. Her claim seems ridiculous to me, but it also seems impossible to disprove. What would the geek say and how would the geek defend Jesus' mythicism in a conversation with this relative? Well, for one thing, I would say that uh, the Hercu- that integral to the myth of Hercules is solar imagery. The twelve labors appear to be the, uh, just like Samson, they're the twelve houses of the zodiac through which the sun proceeds. The poison-tipped arrows that Hercules fires are are the sunstroke rays. This image is used elsewhere. There's uh, Apollo was the sun god and had arrows. And there was Namtar, the sunstroke demon who would get you with arrows and so on. The lion's mane from the Nemean lion which he slays, uh, that is uh, the this rays of the sun figuratively. 
And uh, what happens to Hercules after he's poisoned by uh, Nessus, the centaur? He he, uh, perishes on a funeral pyre, flames, and rises to heaven, where he becomes one of the immortals. I, you know, if you don't have this, I don't think you got much of a Hercules story. What's left over? Uh, and so it seems like that, uh, though conceivably there could have been a Hercules, there is no reason to think so. Uh, you sim- you cannot simply assume it. Like, think of all the, the horror movies you've seen, especially vampire movies. Like uh, Dr. Van Helsing says in one of my favorites, uh, Brides of Dracula. There's usually a good reason for all these old legends. Uh, Not necessarily. Sometimes there is, but uh, sometimes they're just symbols of of astronomical phenomenon. Was there a real Halal son of Shahar? Uh, Was there a real Apollo? What was he, an ancient Greek who ran a tanning parlor? I mean, it's possible but is there any real reason to think so? Uh, and I, I, that's, I think she's making this mistake. Was there a lost continent of Atlantis? Well, there could have been, but there's no particular reason to think so, and, and so forth. And that's, uh, that's, there's a kind of intellectual discipline uh, involved there. Uh, okay, another question from Alexandra in Ohio. Oh, this ought to be good. Uh, got a little biography. I always love them. Um, I don't have a dramatic conversion or deconversion story. My father was raised Catholic, but saw through it at a young age and did not raise me with the religion. My mother practices a casual blend of everyday Shinto and Buddhism common among Japanese people. This is characterized by a belief in ghosts, the need to visit deceased relatives' graves, the purifying power of salt to protect the home, the predictive power of dreams, and a general superstitious quality that is willing to postulate supernatural or ghostly causation among the more mundane occurrences of life. Though I am willing to bet my mother knows of the Eightfold Path, I sincerely doubt that scriptural Buddhism has much prominence at all in most Japanese people's religious lives, except when a relative dies. On that note, I'm fascinated by how Buddhism has become a kind of life-affirming... haunted screen, uh, life-affirming philosophy to the Western upper class... Uh, take a look, by the way, at Harvey Cox's book from, I think, 1976 or 77, Turning East, where he uh, discusses this very thing and how has a, uh, a religion about self-negation become a self-realization therapy. Anyway, um, it's become, yeah, uh, Buddhism in Japan has always been a very dark and morbid religion fixated on death. Anyway, I never believed in capital G God, was skeptical of Christianity from an early age, but I didn't entirely dismiss such things either. And my mind was filled with quasi-religious anxieties, like a fear of evil. Uh, I'm sorry, a fear of evil spiritual entities. This continued until I turned 19 when I finally realized to my horror that I was gay and that my attractions weren't going to be changing anytime soon. 
After coming to terms with my sexuality, 11 years later I'm happily married to a wonderful guy, I never believed in supernatural things again. Looking back, I think that my supernatural beliefs came from a place of anxiety, and becoming comfortable in my own skin allowed me to ditch those beliefs. By the way, as if this weren't obvious, to some people it is not. What you've just said, to me, this homosexual panic thing just gives the lie to this notion that gays choose to be gay, implying that it's some sort of witting perversion. Now, you read story after story, you hear story after story of people, like you say, realizing to their horror that they're gay uh, because they've been horror, because they've been told it's perversion and all that. I, I just cannot imagine anybody has ever chosen to be gay. So, so I'm, I just couldn't help pontificate there. Not, I mean, not that it's a thing <laughs> that it's revolting and, you know, nobody would do it if they had the choice. I don't mean that. I just mean that it's an in, it seems like it's an inborn or deeply entrenched orientation wherever it came from. And uh, that's that. It wasn't just, hey, I think I'll be gay. Uh, anyhow. Oh, let's see. There goes my screen again. This has got to stop. Come on. Okay, there it is again. Anyway, on to my question. I was interested in your idea that the mention of synagogues in the New Testament might be an anachronism, a re retrojection of post-70 AD conditions to a period before the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple. An article on the Society for Biblical Literature page discussed the existence of established synagogues in the Holy Land and mentioned that synagogue buildings were actually quite common not only throughout Judea, but also in Jerusalem itself. The article seemed to imply the opposite of your claim, namely that synagogues were not uh, were not, uh, it implied that synagogues were not uncommon in Judea before the Jewish war. Rather than leap to a conclusion, I wanted to ask you whether there's been a misrepresentation somewhere, either by the SBL or by me regarding your position. Uh, there's a simple solution to this. Um, my claim is not that there were no synagogues in Judea or Jerusalem. We know there were. The problem is there's no evidence of any of them in Galilee, right? That's the problem. Jesus is shown going to synagogues in Galilee. Now, we know there were two in Hellenized uh, sort of colonies that uh, Herod had set up, like uh, Caesarea Philippi, where uh, you had a bunch of Hellenized Jews who had moved there from the diaspora. They had been accustomed to synagogues outside the Holy Land, and so they uh, kind of built a home away from their home away from home. But in general, uh, they there weren't any in Galilee, and uh, that's the problem. They're, they're not refuting the claim that... Uh, not just mythicists, but various critics have pointed out. There's just not evidence. Uh, Rene Salm, in his fascinating book, The Myth of Nazareth, points out that in the same way, there's no definitively datable evidence for an inhabited Nazareth at all in the supposed time of Jesus. So, um, yeah, there, there really isn't a contradiction there. Thanks, Alexander. Um, hmm. Jason Quackenbush. 
I've been working through the Bible in the New American Standard translation, and one of the things I've found more striking in this translation than in previous ones I've read is just how unrelated to the content of the text the chapter divisions often are. This is particularly interesting in Proverbs, where the natural inclination is to think of each chapter as a separate proverb, but there are more than a few occasions where this seems to me to be obviously not the case, where the text shifts uh, seemingly randomly within a chapter from one topic to another. I'd like to get deeper into this, but it's hard to know where to get started on the secondary literature. Can you comment a bit on where people think the wisdom literature came from, how it got incorporated into the Tanakh, and how it is that the later editors seemed so unaware of the content that they just seemed to make the chapter breaks at what occasionally look like fairly arbitrary speaking of arbitrary divisions there goes my uh, yeah uh, uh, fairly arbitrary points uh, in particular the runs of sayings from chapter 10 to roughly the, the sayings of Agur at chapter 30 seem to be occasionally related but mostly just a grab bag of advice along with various mystical claims about capital W wisdom that look almost like hymns to other gods that have been domesticated. Any insight on the Proverbs and what they are would be much appreciated. Well, yeah, um, Margaret Barker uh, makes a very good case in her terrific book The Great Angel, A Study of Israel's Second God, that uh, personified wisdom is simply the goddess Isis, who was widely worshipped in Israel under various aliases, Isis, Astarte, and Anat, and so forth. And uh, so that that's, you know, they had to kind of uh, get rid of the actual name. So, uh, yeah, that is the case. I should think most... uh, introductions in study Bibles would deal with this. Um, Oxford annotated uh, study Bible or any uh, introduction to the Bible like the one I'm working on myself, uh, the Holy Fable. I don't think there's any real conservative liberal divide on this one. Uh, The uh, Proverbs appear to be pretty cosmopolitan the big issue, I guess, is if there's any reason to believe that uh, Solomon was the one who wrote any of them. But there are, what is it, seven collections of Proverbs that have been just juxtaposed uh, in this larger collection, just like there were about four or five psalm collections that have been put together in our book of Psalms. And uh, they were just grab bags. That was, I mean, uh, sometimes of longer and shorter pieces. Uh, But uh, there's no one theme. A favorite theme is staying away from adulteresses uh, and uh, not being lazy and various other things. Uh, Same thing is true with the wisdom of Solomon. Now, that is a late Alexandrian Judaism uh, product And some people say that the cosmopolitanism, even of the book of Proverbs, implies a pretty late date. Uh, And, I mean, it's not that there weren't loads of Proverbs much earlier. So, you know, who knows when specific ones came about. They are grab bags. It ultimately doesn't matter who said them. Right, because uh, the point of a proverb is it's not something you have to take on faith. A proverb is, is an insight, wisdom, not revelation. You hear it and you say, 
son of a gun, that's right. Uh, and uh, like, don't praise yourself. Let other people do it. One of the Proverbs says, yeah, yeah, I'm going to sound like an awful jerk if I point out all my talents. Uh, and how, you know, how satisfying is that even to my ego? Isn't it much more satisfying if other people see that I have something going for me and say it? Uh, and there's all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, one of my favorites is where it says if you want to develop a reputation for wisdom, even if you don't deserve it. There's one thing it can do, and that is to shut up. Uh, because people will think, oh, still waters run deep. But if you keep running your mouth uh, off, they'll say, listen to this jerk. Uh, what a lot of nothing. There's all kinds of stuff. Some of it's overtly humorous. Uh, but uh, there are natural divisions that they, uh, some of which is reflected in the chapter and verse divisions. But, you know, those divisions are much, much later. Like, I think the uh, chapters were added to uh, the Bible in something like the 1400s. And the people that did it were not, as you say, not very alert to what was going on. I mean, often it's not bad, but sometimes you're, what? What the heck? Uh, and it's not the division that the compilers intended, but rather, you know, much, much later editors. Mm, thanks, Jason. Uh, let's see. Uh, Peter in Alaska. Boy, this is tiny print. Uh, let me blow this up a bit so I can read the darn thing. Um, how about 12 point? Yeah, okay. Uh, Mr. Price, what is your preferred moniker? I wish I could rap your name. Um, gee, I don't know. People refer to me as Dr. Price or Dr. Dr. Price, believe it or not, or Geek of Geeks. It doesn't matter. In personal discussion, I always insist on Bob not because I'm trying to sound like a regular guy, but because I am a regular guy and don't want to sound like even more of a pretentious windbag than I do already. Anyway, I was driving home last night reflecting on euhamerization and the role of the visual arts in religion. Specifically, I'm wondering if you can imagine a way to artistically, visually depict a god that doesn't imply corporeality. Uh, let's see. Whoops. Um, uh, let's see. Um, sorry, I've lost this. Yeah, uh, let me just pause there. Once I was team teaching a course on psychology of religion, and my pal, the psychologist, asked everybody to sketch their impression of God. And what I did was to uh, draw a guy in, a, in the lotus position with uh, something like winds or, or lights surrounding him in a kind of a gentle vortex. Because what came to mind for me is people experiencing God. Uh, and uh, rather than a being which can't be described anyway, like I was saying seemingly hours ago on this podcast about uh, the apophatic theological method that you cannot describe or, or imagine God and uh, one only experiences God, at least that's the idea. So that, that's what, 
what I do, that it's more of an inner than an outer thing, or at least, uh, uh, well, ultimately, as Tillich said, the God in the depths and the God out there are the same thing. Uh, anyway, he goes on, does the employment of the persuasive power of the visual arts not only help to convince an audience of the reality of a god, but also necessarily the corporeality? How much do you think this affected the perceived historicity of Jesus? Uh, that's pretty interesting because I think the earliest Christian art does not represent Jesus. I could be mixing this up with Buddhism because in the early decades or longer even, Buddhism did have visual art but didn't depict the Buddha. Instead, they had an um, an open umbrella because uh, anybody that could afford one or was given a lot of respect by people would walk through the extremely hot, sunny climate with an umbrella sheltering them. And so they're trying to say this is the noble one, the Buddha, the enlightened one. Uh, and uh, I am not sure whether they did something like that with Christianity, but as soon as it started depicting him, he looked like Apollo and uh, or Orpheus and uh, not the impression you would get a beardless youth and so forth. But, uh, yeah, it probably did. Uh, you, now, it's interesting that, uh, oh, I think some Plymouth brethren, very devout fundamentalists, do not like pictures of Jesus because they think that violates the Old Testament command against um, iconic worship, against idolatry, no images. And yet they, they're not desitists. They believe God had a body via the incarnation. Uh, interesting. I don't want to say contradiction, but an interesting paradox. Uh, but I imagine if you do depict God, it's pretty tough not to think of God as a, as a at least humanoid being, whatever you think he's made of. Like the Epicureans thought that the Olympian gods existed and even had bodies, but they were made of finer stuff, not crude matter. Uh, I guess uh, if you try to visually represent it, you are making God an object, whereas like Tillich says, God must be beyond the subject-object distinction. What the heck does that mean? Well, Tillich liked to point out in the, what, Romans 8, is it? Uh, somewhere in there it says that uh, the one who searches the hearts knows the, the meaning of the spirit's utterances because it speaks it helps us in prayer through inarticulate groaning and he said now wait a minute who is it who searches the hearts and minds but the spirit uh, it's in you helping you to speak and it's hearing it as you see inside and outside same thing beyond the subject object distinction um, uh, anyway the same thing with Jesus uh, people think well there are pictures of him. I guess he must have been around. Uh, I'm wondering where you feel you differ from Richard Carrier in his assessment of the likelihood of Jesus' historicity. I know you have different opinions on the Q source. Is there much else you disagree upon beyond this? Uh, if I remember correctly, Carrier puts the most generous likelihood for historicity as a, at about 30%. Uh, how do you feel about this number? I uh, This has to do with Bayesian probability, which uh, my mind shuts down trying to consider. Uh, so I, I couldn't do that. I, 
But my uh, view is that though Jesus could have existed, there's no real evidence. So I don't believe Jesus didn't exist. Uh, it's uh, It has to remain an open question, but I just don't see much reason to think so. And um, it seems more likely to me that Jesus was purely mythic, but I, I couldn't attach uh, number values to it and, and don't see the value in it. But again, I'm not criticizing uh, Richard, who, with whom I agree on pretty much everything, the actual questions. Um, but I just, I think what he's doing there it depends upon uh, mathematical calculation, which I'm too stupid to uh, understand, much less agree with. Uh, so, uh, you know, all honor to him. Mm, I guess that's enough for today. Uh, I'll uh, be back with you, who knows, maybe in a week or so, but I guess that's not too bad for today. I knocked off about 11 pages of questions. And uh, so, uh, once again, uh, if you can help us keep the, the lights on, uh, I will much appreciate it, but there is no entrance fee. Uh, however, uh, let me know if you're interested in uh, my audio courses on the Gospel of Thomas and uh, religions of the world and so forth. I'll send you the links and all that. It's a hundred bucks per course. Some are longer, some are shorter, but I think it ultimately evens out. I'd appreciate uh, that. So I'll see you next time on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeon Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn placed on the firing line. So you'd better brush the dust from that old Bible. And look up to the stars when they shine. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.